0: Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talise. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is David Edmonds. We'll be talking about his new book, Would You Kill the Fat Man?, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. The trolley problem is a staple of contemporary moral philosophy. It centers around two scenarios involving a runaway trolley. In the first, a trolley is barreling down a track without any brakes, and off in the distance, five people are tied to its track. If you do nothing, they will be killed by the trolley. But you can flip a switch, thereby turning the trolley onto a spur where there is only one person tied. In this case, most people claim that one should indeed save the five by turning the trolley, even though this means that the one will be killed. Now consider a second case, which is just like the first, but for this difference. There is no spur onto which one could turn the trolley, but instead one could push a fat man on the track and his size is sufficient to stop the trolley from killing the five. Again, should you push the fat man, thereby saving five lives at the expense of one? Here, most people's intuition flips. You may not push the fat man. But why not? What's the moral difference between the first and second cases? This is the question at the core of trolleyology. In his book, Would You Kill the Fat Man?, David Edmonds explores the trolley problem in all of its complex variety, bringing into focus crucial philosophical distinctions and canvassing some of the fascinating empirical literature about real-time moral decision-making. This book is a work of rigorous philosophy that is also widely accessible to a non-professional audience. Let's turn now to the interview. Hello, Dave Edmonds. Hi, Bob. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you?
0: Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books and Philosophy.
1: Pleasure. Nice to be here.
0: Well, today to, on New Books and Philosophy, my guest is Dave Edmonds. His new book is titled Would You Kill the Fat Man? It's just been published by Princeton University Press, and I suspect as many listeners uh, will have uh, already discerned, uh, Dave is writing about the trolley problem, uh, which, again, as many of our listeners I'm sure already know, is a central issue in contemporary moral theory and is notoriously um, complex and complicated and by some accounts absurd, uh, but I think on all accounts kind of uh, fascinating. Um, it's a problem that can be stated very simply, and uh, very shortly I will uh, ask Dave to state it, um, but uh, despite the fact that it can be stated so simply, um, it's, a, it's attracted the attention of some of philosophy's greatest minds, uh, and thousands, hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many uh, thousands of pages have been devoted to it. Uh, in fact, uh, in philosophy these days, uh, we recognize trolleyology uh, as a subfield within moral philosophy more broadly. Um, maybe that term is a joke. We'll see. Um, in any case, there's a lot to discuss here about the ins and outs of the trolley problem. Uh, so we'll get to that shortly. But first, Dave, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I guess I'm an unusual guest for you on your, on your show, um, because I'm not uh, a professional philosopher. At least, it's not my main job. So, I studied philosophy at Oxford. I did uh, a degree called Politics, Philosophy and Economics, which is quite a well-known degree at Oxford. And then I did the BPhil postgraduate degree um, in uh, philosophy, which in the old days was enough for you to then go on to an academic career. But but, uh, in the last 20, 30 years, one's also needed to go on and get a PhD. And uh, I remember thinking when I was wondering whether to do the PhD, um, whether I should do the PhD, and thinking that... um, uh, I'm really not Wittgenstein, and that that, 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 <laughs> hit, me, that hit me quite hard. I thought uh, that if I wanted to do philosophy, I really ought to only do it if I was going to make a major contribution. And my fear, uh, which I'm sure was uh, a, a correct suspicion, was that I wasn't going to make a major contribution. Whereas if I went into another profession, it didn't matter if I wasn't the best at it. Um, so I moved into um, first into a think tank and then into journalism. Uh, And uh, joined the BBC, where I spent most of my career making radio documentaries in hell holes in uh, 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 difficult different parts of the world. Uh, But a a few years later, after moving into journalism, I decided to to do a PhD in philosophy, which is I, I felt it was unfinished business and. Uh, my, in fact, my BPhil supervisor had been Derek Parfit, um, who huh. many of your listeners will will know, a very well-known philosopher. And yes. my PhD supervisor was Derek's partner, now his wife, Janet Radcliffe Richards. Um, right. So I did, I did a PhD at the Open University, which is um, a university in the UK where you can just study at night or study at weekends, and it's really designed for people who, are, who have uh, a full-time job or a part-time job and so can't devote their whole time to study. Uh, and I did it on the philosophy of discrimination um, uh, I was particularly interested in the question of whether it was um, rational or rather moral to take decisions based on rational statistics so to take a very controversial case uh, if you're going through an airport and uh, your airport security and you're faced with uh, two people who are coming through and one is a person of Middle Eastern appearance and has a long beard and has a rucksack Uh, and maybe, I don't know, you can hear something ticking, and another is an old lady um, uh, travelling on her own, Um, it would seem to be obvious that one is more uh, uh, risky uh, than another. I mean, statistically, that would seem to be the case. But is it moral to base your decision to stop and search? Let's say you can only stop and search one of them. Is it moral to, to stop and search one of them based on, Those kind of rational statistics. So that was Mm -hmm. what my PhD was on. And uh, I uh, then a few years later on started up a a website called Philosophy Bites with a a friend, Nigel Warburton, which is how we uh, we got to know you, Bob, actually, a few years ago. (laughs) That's right. Uh, and I've made a few philosophy programmes for the BBC, and in the last six or seven years, I think it is now, I've had an philis- academic attachment to the Uhira Centre for Practical Ethics in Oxford, and I go there once a week. So I have a, a, what they call a portfolio existence. So I'm, I'm three days at the BBC, I spend one day writing, and I spend one day at Oxford.
0: Well, that sounds like uh, a pretty nice way to spend one 's week i should say <laughs> it is
1: it, it um, is it's, it, it's, you can never get too bored of any one of them
0: <laughs> and I should say that um, uh, the um, at least on one i think reasonable metric of impact um, uh, the philosophy bytes um, website and series of podcasts has made considerable uh, uh, a considerable difference uh, in the world of academic philosophy. Um, uh, maybe it hasn't yet had the impact of Wittgenstein, but um, maybe it will eventually.
1: Well, a different kind of impact. A different kind. <laughs> That's of, right. Yeah, yeah. It hasn't pushed the the discipline forward. It hasn't made any discoveries, but uh, it's been, I think, useful in connecting academia to a wider world. We've now had. Over 20 million downloads. I mean, it's it's taken us completely by surprise, but it's all been word of mouth. And we often tackle very tough, esoteric topics. And uh, we're routinely getting, you know, 250,000, 300,000 downloads a month now, uh, which is very gratifying.
0: Well, that's amazing. Um, Let me pick up on that. And um, before we get to uh, talking about um, the actual content of the book, Would You Kill the Fat Man, uh, I wanted to ask just a little bit about um, the book in a different sense because one of the things that I found um, really uh, refreshing uh, and and maybe even uplifting and inspiring about the book is um, you have an uncanny ability to combine um, rigorous philosophy, uh, in, um, in, in the best sense of that word, um, you know, very clear philosophical writing, um, uh, very compelling, uh argumentative moves uh all of that is combined with um a level of accessibility and readability that uh I am just um in awe of it's just it's, it i mean I marvel at the achievement in a way so i, I guess i have two questions um y- you it, both with the podcast and with this book and with some of the previous things you've written um aim to address um philosophy to a broader audience uh of non-professional academics um and, um, you do so, so well. So the two questions are, um, one is the sort of question, what, what, what's the aim? What, what, what's, what's the motivation? Why do you think it's important to do philosophy in this public way? And then secondly, um, how do you do it so well? How, how, how do you achieve it? <laughs>
1: That's a nice question. <laughs> uh, well, I, 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 this is, I guess the third popular philosophy book I've, written, if you exclude the Philosophy Bites book. So there was Wittgenstein's Poker and Russo's Dog, which were two books I co-wrote with uh, another friend and a BBC colleague, John Mm Eidenauer. And in answer to your question why I do it, well, I do it because I enjoy telling stories, I think. Uh, So I'm love the philosophy, and I'm passionate about the philosophy, and I'm also passionate about trying to explain the philosophy to a wide, wide audience, and I love telling stories too. So I guess my journalistic career has been very useful because you have to learn, this is moving on to your the second question, you have to learn to be clear in journalism. But I've always felt, I think, that there's no sin, almost no sin. I exaggerate, but I I think it's a great sin not to write in an accessible fashion where you can write in an accessible fashion. Now, there are some ideas that are so complicated that it's almost impossible to explain them in a way that the lay person will understand. And Einstein's theory of relativity might be an example of that. But I think In philosophy, there are very few examples of that. I mean, Wittgenstein, the the, the book Wittgenstein's Poker, we have several chapters about the philosophy, and Wittgenstein is not regarded as the easiest of philosophers, but Wittgenstein can be explained, I think, in a way that non-philosophers can understand. I think one of the interesting things in the world of academic philosophy is that there's almost no correlation between The brilliance of a philosopher and that philosopher's ideas, and the ability of that philosopher to write well. So one thinks of Hegel, uh, who's part of the philosophical canon, but (laughs) almost impossible to read, very difficult to read. Uh, Then you think of somebody like uh, David Hume, who's at the opposite end of the spectrum, also regarded as one of the top few philosophers. Uh, in history, by most academic philosophers, and yet writes crystal clear prose, absolutely right. beautiful prose. And then you get another set of philosophers—a bit. Uh, Wittgenstein might be one. Nietzsche might be another. Kierkegaard might be a third, who write in a a, a kind of a slightly different style. I mean, Wittgenstein, there's a poetic quality to it. Nietzsche writes a bit like a novelist. So does Kierkegaard. Uh, Beautiful prose writers, but don't write in a kind of Anglo-American tradition of there are four arguments and here they are one, two, three, four. Um, So there are various styles. And there's no correlation between how good a philosopher they are and how good at writing they are. But I think if you can try to make things as simple and accessible as possible, you should do. And What I think is unforgivable, and and I won't name names, are uh, uh, philosophers who almost make it deliberately obtuse um, uh, and make it deliberately difficult uh, for readers to, to get at what they're trying to say
0: right right i, 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 I we won 't name names, I understand uh, the phenomenon uh, that you that you mean um, uh, which is too bad in all kinds of respects because um, uh, even some of the names that i won 't name that i 'm thinking of you know some of the ideas are really, really important and um, uh, the, 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 the trappings of the, 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 the form of the expression sort of, um, make it harder for people to see their importance. Yeah. Uh, and something there is, is, is lost. That's very significant. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, good. Let, let, let me pick up on, uh, something you said that was, uh, intriguing, which was this, the storytelling, um, uh, um, or the, your connection to storytelling, um, because one of the other features of this book that I thought was, uh, was, was very nice, and uh, I'll say that um, I learned a lot from your book in all kinds of respects, but um, uh, one of the things I, I, I really uh, uh, am, am glad to have learned was something. Uh, some of the things about the story – of the trolley problem, um, which I had known parts of, and I knew, of course, known about the the people who were first formulating it and their relations to each other. But you do a wonderful job early in the book of telling the story of the people who are involved in the creation uh, of this problem. So, before I ask you to tell us uh, what the problem is, what the trolley problem is, um, can you tell us a little bit about some of the the, the people involved in, uh, in in making this the phil philosophical puzzle that it's become.
1: Yes, sure. I should start by saying that that there was something counterintuitive when I wrote that chapter. There's almost a whole chapter on the story of the trolley problem and its origins. I sent it to various people, to philosophers and non-philosophers, and I expected all the philosophers to say, oh, that's completely irrelevant, get to the heart of the matter, get to the philosophy. And I expected all the non-philosophers to say, oh, that's really interesting, we love that gossip and the the sex and the the relationships and all that. And it was completely the reverse, actually. The non-philosophers said... What's that got to do with the, the, the trolley problem? And it was the philosophers, I guess the, the people who'd heard about these characters who all said, oh, we want more about Elizabeth Anscombe. we want more about Irish Murdoch, we want more about Philippa Foote. So these are some of the characters who who come up in the book, and it was Philippa Foote who comes up with the original trolley problem back in 1967. Uh, and she's an interesting woman. She was uh, an Oxford academic. Uh, she lived during the war with the novelist Irish Murdoch and they had a terrible falling out. They swapped lovers and there was a, there wasn't a a menage a trois. There was a menage a quatre because there were four of them and they all, there were, there were permutations with almost all four of them. And and eventually Philippa Foote had an affair with Irish Murdoch as well, uh, almost to, almost to complete the, 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 the square as it were. Um, uh, and uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, who is a character who appears quite a lot in the book, was also a friend and a colleague of, of um, Philippa Foot's, although they two fell out. They, they both taught at St Anne's together, and Elizabeth Anscombe was a very strict uh, Roman Catholic, and Philippa Foot was secular, and, and, and eventually that, that the tension between their different ideologies drove them apart. Um, so I talk about those women, and I, it's ironic or it's interesting, at least, that trolleology which one might initially assume would be a very male subgenre of philosophy, because it's to do with I don't know puzzles, and uh, it's got this kind of mathematical component, uh, and you uh, you might come with a prejudiced view and think, well. That's the sort of thing that male philosophers would do. In fact, all the main characters or almost all the main characters in, in, as you call it, trolleology, and as it's been jokingly referred to, uh, are women. Um, And so um, I describe them all. One of the interesting things about Philippa Foot is that um, she comes from a very pucker English background. But in fact, her grandfather was President Grover Cleveland, and her mother was the first and I think the only child of a present to be actually born in the White House.
0: Amazing. <laughs> I hadn't I mean that was one of the, the, the facts about um about these characters that I had I had never realized and yeah. never heard before. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Uh so that was um, – uh, so we've got these three, um, these three lives uh, that are intertwined in various ways, um, Elizabeth Anscombe, uh, Philippa Foot and um, Iris Murdoch. And um, the trolley problem, I take it, is originally posed um, in the context of discussing a different kind of moral dilemma. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. In fact – she writes philippa Foote writes the article in which the trolley problem first appears in 1967 and 1967 is a significant year in britain because it's the year that abortion is legal, is legalized mm-hmm. and uh, it has uh, ceased to become an issue in britain now so but in 1967 it remained A a very contentious issue, and she was actually writing about abortion. But uh, the trolley problem, as she sets it up, is this you imagine it wasn't a trolley, it was a train, it was taken over by Americans and it became a tram or a trolley. Uh, But you imagine a a train is out of control, uh, its brakes have failed, it's running down a track, and it's going to kill five people. Five people are tied to the track, and if you do nothing, These five people will be killed. Uh, Now, in Philippa Foote's original example, you are the driver of the train, but let's ignore that. Uh, Let's imagine that you're standing by the side of the track and you're watching this train hurtling down the track about to kill these five people. Uh, Fortunately, there's something you can do. If you turn a switch, you can turn the train or the trolley down a sidetrack or down a spur. Uh, that's the good news, in, uh, and you can avoid killing the five people. The bad news is that on that sidetrack or on that spur, one person is tied to the track. And the question is, should you turn the train, should you sw- switch that uh, that little knob and send the train down the sidetrack to kill the one person to save the five?
0: Right, and um, I take it that the the the... the The trolley problem emerges um, from the fact that. we will elicit from people, you know, persons on the street as we sometimes call them in philosophy, uh, one kind of intuition about the case that you've just described and then when we give a slightly different kind of case that looks morally identical, uh, which I'll ask you about in a second, you get a different kind of response. Um, so what's, how, how does the fat man enter into uh, the, the trolley problem?
1: Well, you've described it exactly right. So if you ask people the first trolley problem, which I've just described, pretty much everybody, 90% of people, think that you should turn the train or turn the trolley down the sidetrack and kill the one to save the five. In the literature at the time, in the 1960s and before that, there was another famous case that lots of people discussed. And that was the case of a... Hospital, in which five people were dying, two people needed desperately lung transplants, two people needed kidney transplants, one person needed a heart transplant and if you did nothing, all five were going to die. Uh, as it happened, one person perfectly almost healthy person, w- went into the hospital. he needed a minor operation, but after his minor operation he 'd be absolutely fine and he 'd leave the hospital and he 'd live a a normal, healthy life. He walks into the hospital, and you have the option. You could bash him over the head, you could take out his lungs and his kidneys and his heart, and you could save these five people who otherwise would die. And philosophers, as most people on the street, uh, thought, well, that's obviously the wrong thing to do. Um, in the 1980s, an American philosopher called Judith Jarvis Thompson comes up with a parallel case. With the trolleys. So she imagines this. She imagines that once again, the train is out of control. It's going down the track. It's going to kill five people who are tied to the track ahead of it. This time, you're not standing by the side of the track. You're on a footbridge overlooking the track. And you're next to a rather fat man. And what you could do is give the fat man a gentle Shove. He's actually leaning over the footbridge. A gentle shove. He'll topple over. He'll splatter onto the track below, and his bulk will be such that it will stop the train uh, from killing the five people. And the question is, should you push the fat man? And well, I don't know what your reaction is, Bob. Would you would you push the fat man?
0: Um, I don't think so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, so 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 you're typical. You're typical. So. I mentioned in the first case, 90% of people will turn the trolley to kill the one person on the sidetrack. In the fat man case, 90% of people will, won't push the fat man. So the, the statistics are completely reversed. I should add at this point that he's has to be a fat man. But many people say it, it, it's sort of politically incorrect to say, well, uh, uh, call somebody fat. But it's very important that he's fat because... Um, if he wasn't a fat man the moral thing to do would be of course for you to jump over the footbridge yourself uh, and to stop the train but the philosopher has so arranged it that that's no good because if you did that the train would just hit you and go, carry on and, and and hit the and kill the five people because you're not big enough to stop The train. The only thing that will stop the train or the trolley is the fat man. In fact, in the contemporary literature, because people don't like talking about uh, fat, the fat people anymore, uh, often it's the case that the example is described as a person who's leaning over the footbridge and he's normal-sized, but he's wearing uh, or carrying a heavy backpack, and there's no time to. To take the backpack off and to put it on yourself and to jump over, all you can do is push the the man over with the, with the backpack, um, but in the original case in judith jarvis thompson 's example it 's a fat man, and the question is should you push the fat man
0: right, so the philosophical problem then seems to be uh, the following: um, It looks as if the two cases the the, 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 the case where you 've got five trapped uh, on the track and then there's a spur and there's one uh, trapped and you could turn the trolley. Uh, that case looks at least more like it should be morally identical uh, to the case where uh, you're on the, the the bridge overlooking the track. Uh, in both cases, it looks as if um, you are introducing some action uh, which um, saves the five uh, but kills one. Um, And so I guess the philosophical puzzle then is uh, how to account for the fact that people's intuitions change. That is, people seem to think it's okay to flip a switch. That means that the five will be saved and one person will die. But when it comes to... I don't know, maybe putting your hands on another person or pushing somebody, their intuitions start to shift. They think, oh, no, we can't do that, even though morally it's hard to see what the difference is. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. So it looks like in both cases you've got the choice between killing one and saving five. In the first case, we think it's okay to kill one to save five. In the second case, we think it's not okay to kill the one to save the five. And this has been a bit like a 50 year uh, crime detective novel, philosophical (laughs) detective novel with philosophers trying to work out what the difference is. I want to pick up on something you've just said. You said in the first case, what you're doing is turning a switch. And in the second case, what you're doing is actually physically pushing somebody. And the implication of what you said is that somehow that explains it. But in the second case, there's something people don't like getting up close and personal. Whereas in the first case, all they have to do is to flip the switch. Well, that's a very good supposition. And everything about trolleyology has been tested. So there's, there's no theory that hasn't been tested uh, out there in the wider world. Everything's been tested, and that has been tested. And the way they tested that was they imagined another case, and this time... The train is going along, and it's going to kill five people. Once again, its brakes have failed. Uh, This time, it has elements of the first case, the spur case, and the elements of the fat man case. It's got elements of the first case in that you're now standing by the side of the track. You're not on the the footbridge itself. You're standing by the side of the track. Um, It's got elements of the second case in that the only way you can stop the train is that there's a fat man on the footbridge but this time you can't push him all you need to do is flick a switch and if you <laughs> flick the switch the fat man as it happens is standing over a trap door right. and he'll come uh, come he'll uh, let come through the front of the trap door he'll once again land on the track and his bulk will stop the train from killing the five now notice the difference here you're not having to shove the fat man with your arms. All you're having to do is exactly the same as in the first case. You're having to just turn a little switch to bring him down through the through the trap door. Now, if your supposition was correct, people right. would be uh, as willing to kill the fat man in that case as they are to turn the train in the first case down the spur. But that's not how it turns out to be. So it does explain some of the effect. People are more willing to drop the fat man through the trapdoor than they are to push the fat man over the footbridge, but still the majority of people think it's objectionable to kill the fat man, even in that case where all you have to do is turn a little switch so it doesn 't look like that contains the explanation of course, that was never going to be a moral explanation, that was merely a psychological explanation right it doesn't it doesn 't even look like it accounts for any the psychological explanation or the moral explanation. It it, it it might go part way to explain the psychological effect, but it doesn't look like it's it's capturing all of what's going on.
0: So let's let's then talk about. Um, I, I, I want to pick up uh, in a little bit on the, uh, the the distinction that we that was just drawn between a moral explanation and a psychological explanation. I think that's an important piece of the of the book and an important piece of the puzzle. Um, but I wanted to first ask um, sort of just the general question. Maybe you can help us run through um, some of the um, moral distinctions that it looks like we're going to need to bring to bear on this. So. Um, it looks as if uh, one way to cash out maybe the distinction between the first Spur case and the Fat Man case and um, maybe one way to even think about the difference between the the original Fat Man case and then the trapdoor case, um, that is the case where you push versus the case where you just release somebody from a trapdoor, is that um, we might need concepts like um, the difference between doing something and allowing it on the one hand, and maybe we also might need, um, some kind of, uh, philosophical, um, uh, fanciness with respect to the concept of an intention. Um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about how, uh, these concepts get uh, developed in response, uh, to the trolley problem.
1: Yes. I mean, both have been used. I think I'll focus, focus on the second one because I think that's the crucial one. Sure. The difference between intending something and merely foreseeing it. Uh, and uh, if I can jump, as it were, to the last chapter, the bit of the of the crime novel where Hercule Poirot brings all the suspects into the dining room and says, uh, "Mister, uh, you, it is you who is guilty." Um, <laughs> I, I think it actually intention is at the heart of this and can explain our intuitions here, and the difference between intending and foreseeing does capture and explain our uh, different uh, responses. To the the main two trolley cases, and this goes all the way back to Thomas Aquinas actually, who comes up with the doctrine of double effect, uh, and that is uh, the doctrine of double effect refers to uh, two effects. There's a, an effect that you intend, uh, and effect an effect that you merely foresee. So, to give you a practical example and we've been talking in very abstract terms and and some listeners might be forgiven for thinking that uh, this is philosophers just playing i don't know philosophical chess or something like this but it it, it has actually has many practical implications uh, in medical ethics for example but also particularly in warfare so in warfare we often hear our leaders we we heard uh, president bush would often make this distinction Tony Blair would often make this distinction in the UK between uh, what they were doing uh, in the so-called war on terror and what their, the enemy was doing as they saw it. And they would say, well, uh, let's suppose we want to attack a military installation in Iraq. Uh, we send a missile to attack it. We recognize that there are civilians who live around the uh, target and that, in all probability, these civilians will be killed. Let's say we foresee that 100 civilians will be killed. But we don't intend for them to die. What we intend is that we destroy the military factory that is making uh, bombs and grenades for the enemy. They said there's a difference between that and let's say al-Qaeda, who go out and intend to kill civilians. Now, let's say al-Qaeda kills 100 civilians in one operation, and President Bush or Tony Blair kill 100 civilians and foresee that they're going to kill 100 civilians in their operation. Uh, They want to say, and I think this is perfectly legitimate, that what they do is not as objectionable as what al-Qaeda does. So when al-Qaeda intends to kill civilians, that is worse than Tony Blair and George W. Bush uh, aiming to attack a military installation, intending to destroy it, foreseeing that civilians will nonetheless die. So one really complicated problem for philosophers is to try and tease out that distinction between Intending and merely foreseeing, but you can immediately grasp its its basic intuitive appeal. I think,
0: right? And um, we should note, I, I, I take it, uh, just just to make sure that that um, our listeners are on board, the foreseeing is also connected to a causing, right? It's it's a foreseen consequence of what you're doing, but not the. The intention uh, behind what you're doing, right? So it's not just a projection, uh, um, a prediction of what will happen. It is um, in the kind of case you're thinking of, it's by attacking the military installation, we will cause the death. Right. Of a hundred civilians, even though the death of the hundred civilians is not part of what we are intending to achieve, we're right. intending uh, uh, the, the, the the dismantling of the the, 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 the military factory or something. Right. Um, so, t- tell us now how that figures into. I mean, that's a good distinction. It seems like it should be able to do some uh, to bear some philosophical weight. Uh, how does that play into the, the, the explaining the the the, the two? Um, uh, trolley kinds of cases?
1: Okay, uh, I'll explain. I mean, first, I should say that it's not nearly as easy as it sounds to draw that d- distinction, because uh, it's sometimes quite difficult to capture what your intention is. So there's another, for example, famous uh, case in the literature where, uh, Philip Foot talks about this, where there's a fat man, once again, poor old fat man, they keep get it, getting it in these, in these philosophical <laughs> scenarios. There's a fat man with his head through a hole in a cave, and there are five people behind the fat man and the water is slowly rising and these five people uh, are going to die uh, because the fat man is blocking their way out. They have a stick of dynamite, and what they could do is blow up the fat man and all escape through the cave and, and, and survive. Now, what do they intend to do when they blow up the fat man? Well, they intend to kill the fat man. But what what you could say is, no, 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 we don't intend to kill the fat man. What we intend to do is just blow him up into a thousand different pieces. If he could then be stitched back together, we'd be delighted because... Uh, then he wouldn't have died and we'd all have escaped. So our intention is not to kill him. It's just to blow him up into a thousand different pieces so we can get through the hole. I mean, obviously that seems bogus, but it it gives you an example of of how difficult it is to define what an intention actually is. But to go back to your question, how does this help with the trolley case? Well, I think it helps in the following way. Imagine that in the first case, when you can turn the train to go down the spur, imagine in the first case that the man on the spur, uh, it's always a man, it could be, uh, I don't know why it's always a man, it could be a, a woman on the, on the spur, is uh, able to extricate himself or herself magically uh, and uh, escape. So the train just goes gently down the spur and doesn't kill anybody. So how would you feel about that? Well, you'd feel delighted because... You've turned the train away from the five, and you haven't hit the one. So you haven't had to kill anybody. Now imagine that the fat man is pushed off the footbridge, and let's suppose he happens to be wearing a rubber suit, and he bounces off the track, and he runs away from the track. Now, how do you feel about that? Are you equally delighted? Well, you're not equally delighted, because this time, because the fat man is no longer there... The train continues along its path and it kills the five people. So it looks like in the first case, the death of the one person on a spur is a means, a side effect of saving the five. But in the second case, in the fat man case, you need the death of the the fat man to save the five. You intend the fat man to die. Uh, to save the five you could equally to go back to the famous hospital example when the one person comes in who's perfectly healthy and you need to bop him on the head and take his lungs and his kidneys and a heart and his heart to save the five people you need that person's death you need that person's organs to save the five so it looks like in the one case you're using somebody as a means to an end and the other case you're not
0: Right, and so is the now just fill in the the how does that explain the reluctance uh, to push the fat man uh, uh, and the um, the the seeming uh, obviousness that you should uh, turn the trolley in the spur case
1: so I think it explains it because. There is that psycho- that small psychological effect that you talked about at the beginning, but I think the philosophical point is that uh, we're reluctant to kill the fat man because we don't we recognize that it's morally objectionable to use the fat man's death as a means to save the five, whereas the person on the sidetrack Is not being used as a means to save the five. We just happen to have to kill the person on the sidetrack to save the five, but we don't intend the person on the sidetrack to die, whereas we intend uh, the fat man to die. And I think that's how uh, the philosophical problem is solved. One of the very interesting things about troleology is that, I think that's the explanation, other philosophers disagree, but we have these strong intuitions And it takes a long time for us to unravel them, to deconstruct them. So we have these immediate gut reactions. But uh, we have to reflect very deeply on why we have these gut reactions. And some people have drawn a distinction here between trolleology and language. So Chomsky has this view that all languages have in common a deep grammatical structure. Uh, And some people say, well... The trolley problem shows has two parallels with with that. The first is that humans have some deep moral structure because if you ask these trolley problems of people anywhere in the world, if you ask it of the rich or the poor, the educated, the less educated, Americans or Indians, um, uh, uh, men or women, black or white, you get the same response. And it suggests that there's... perhaps some deep moral grammar that we all share in common. That's the first thing. The second parallel with language is that in language, we often follow these linguistic rules. So we might say... Uh, the big blue elephant and not the blue big elephant. And if we're asked why we have put these adjectives in in that order, well it takes us quite a long time to think about that. And then we realise oh yes, we're following this particular rule. Well, it looks like morality might be a bit like that and these trolley problems demonstrate that. That we're following rules that we're sort of unaware of and we have to think quite deeply to recognise the rules that we're actually following.
0: Right. Um let me ask a a slightly different kind of question that is not addressed in the book and I'm not even sure if this is addressed in um the trolley literature but um I I was intrigued um just as uh, we were talking about the, the the case the 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 sort of um um the spur case where um lucky for us uh, you know, we turn the we turn the trolley onto the spur, and then lucky for us, the the one man who was tied to the track there manages to escape. Yeah. Um, and so we save the five without having to sacrifice the one. Um, has there been much um, uh, written about um, that kind of case where the ex- where the escaped one? Um, what kind of moral attitude should he have? Um, Am I blameworthy even though uh, <laughs> uh, he managed to escape? Can well I, hang I, on it, In the spur case,
1: if he escapes, there are no bad consequences, right? Because the train has just gone down the track.: and That's right. He's escaped. so nobody's, so he shouldn't feel any moral guilt at all, obviously. Uh, he's, well, he saved his why, why would he feel any – he saved his life and nobody's that, died?
0: No, no, no. He and I don't think that he should feel any moral guilt. I right. think he should morally blame me for being willing to sacrifice him <laughs> uh, for the five. Right, right. I've expressed what? a kind of um, uh, uh, a willingness to act in a way that would um, uh, perhaps objectionably say um, – uh, I can do something that will foreseeably cause your death for the sake of saving five other people. Um, and maybe he's not a utilitarian uh, about these things. And so I wonder if anybody said, well, if he does escape, he, he still has some kind of moral claim against the person who pulled the switch. Yes, that's a
1: very interesting question. i not – it might be the one area of trolleology that hasn't been investigated. <laughs> Somebody I mean, go write the paper. <laughs> I mean they, they've looked at uh, – all sorts of things. You know, you, you imagine that the person on, the, on the, the one person is about to find a cure for, for cancer. You imagine <laughs> that the, the, the five people are, are war criminals or my, my favorite uh, a, a bit of experimental ethics is they, they've done this, uh, the, the trolley problem where they've asked people uh, whether they would push the fat man. But they've changed the identity of the fat man. And in, in the one case, they've given it a stereotypical white name, and they call it, I can't remember, Chester Ellsworth the Third or something, and in the other case, they've given the fat man a stereotypical black name, uh, Dwayne Jackson or something, I can't remember what the name was, and then they asked people, well, would you push the fat man, and they did find a, a minor effect, and the... counterintuitive counterintuitive, intriguing effect was that for liberals or for Democrats, uh, there was um, uh, sorry, for conservatives, there was no effect at all. So they would be as likely or uh, uh, as reluctant to push uh, the, the white name as the black name. But for Uh, The the Democrats or the liberals, they were more willing to push uh, the the person with the uh, the stereotypical white name than they were with the stereotypical black name. So that that was an intriguing result. But uh, uh, to to go back to your example, I think it would be quite tough. I mean, it would be understandable, but nonetheless quite tough of the person on the sidetrack to blame the person who turned the train, given that almost everybody recognizes that it was the right thing to do.
0: Right um and i guess there are deep questions about whether um uh, it's possible to, to to do the thing that yes. everybody thinks is the right thing but yet yes. still be liable to blame. Well, I think – yeah, go on. Yeah, I, I was going to just ask now um, about uh, what I, I take it um, a good number statistically of our listeners is, are, are now going to think is sort of the uh, – you know, the 100-pound the gorilla that hasn't made its appearance yet into the discussion. Despite all of our talk about numbers, um, five people versus one person um, – Uh, And the rest, Um, we haven't yet um, considered the ways in which utilitarians uh, sort of sit back and look at all of this. I take it that the utilitarian is somebody who is um, prone uh, to look at trolleyology with a kind of um, amused uh, satisfaction, thinking that um, the trolley problem – is a uh, symptom of a very deep defect in non-consequentialist conceptions of morality. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about uh, why utilitarian – or maybe let me just ask the more general question. How does a utilitarian uh, view the trolley problem?
1: Well, the utilitarian in a way doesn't engage with the trolley problem at all. If you're a utilitarian, you don't need to worry about any of these trolley – Cases Because in each of these trolley cases, the choice is between taking one life and saving five. And so if you're consequentialist, if all the matters are the consequences, then in each and every case, what you should do is take the one life uh, to save the five lives. So in one sense, the utilitarian just kind of smirks when he... Or she looks at these trolley cases and thinks, well, you're getting yourself wrapped up in all these difficulties and there's a simple, straightforward answer to, to all these problems. On the other hand, the uh, attack of, on the Unitarian is is to say, well, you're the one who's in trouble because most of us think that there is an obvious difference between these cases. And if you're claiming that your meta-theory can 't identify any obvious difference well that 's a flaw in your meta theory that 's a flaw in utilitarianism if you can 't tease out any distinction between the fat man and the original spur case well that 's a problem for you that 's not a problem for us
0: right and let me just um, uh, sort of ask you to, to to fill in that thought so I, I take it that um, uh, one of the the features of utilitarianism um, in fact one of the central features of utilitarianism um, will lead the utilitarian to deny the kind of distinctions that uh, it seemed as if we wanted to rely on uh, to explain the moral difference between Spur and Fat Man, uh, which is um, the difference between intending and foreseeing. Um, And it looks as if the utilitarian um, is going to say, well, there's no difference that makes a moral difference there. And I take it the utilitarian is also going to have to say things like um, – there's no difference that's caused by uh, the difference between turning a switch and laying hands on another person. Uh, there would be no difference between um, pushing the one person over the bridge if that person were um, a very heavy set relative of yours rather than a heavy set stranger um, and that the sort of distance and relation uh, and the sort of internal processes with respect to intention, none of these things will matter for the utilitarian. Is that well, right?
1: That's correct. They, they may have a sophisticated view about why we should draw these distinctions. So it might be the case that it's not sensible to, to grapple with people over footbridges because they can fight back or whatever. So it might be sensible that we don't have a intuition to push people off footbridges. But ultimately, no moral distinction can be drawn. And When President Bush or Prime Minister Tony Blair say there's a moral distinction between what we do and what Al-Qaeda do, the use of the term would say you're just killing yourself. If you know that 100 civilians are going to die, your action is morally indistinct from the Al-Qaeda action, which is uh, aimed deliberately at killing 100 people.
0: Right right um so let's pick up then on on, on some of what was uh, what we were just talking about uh, especially when you're um, talking about uh, the utilitarian um, having to as it were uh, either explain away or deny the moral significance of our gut reactions to some of these cases uh, as you say you know all of us um, I mean you've got to get pretty far along in philosophy and uh, and you have to get pretty far along in utilitarianism before you stop feeling the difference between the fat man and the spur case. Um, But I take it that some of the uh, trolley problem uh, issues um, with respect to our gut feelings or with respect to the psychological features of these cases uh, have actually been investigated. So let me ask you first to sort of draw the distinction uh, that we mentioned um, a little bit earlier between a psychological and a moral explanation. And then tell us a little bit about the experimental philosophy and some of the moral psychology stuff that's gone into talking about um, our sort of uh, emotive and psychological reactions to these kinds of cases
1: right so Peter Singer has a famous case where he imagines you're going past a pond and uh, there's somebody drowning in your in the pond and uh, you could save that person but if you did that you'd get your shoes. Uh, you are drawing your shoes and your shoes cost 150 quid. And you think, I'm not going to ruin my shoes. I'll let that person die. And we'd all think that was a, outrageous. And Peter Singer uh, 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 imagines a similar case where you could actually spend 150 pounds and save somebody's life on the other side of the world. And basically he wants to draw, uh, uh, well, he doesn't want to draw a distinction. He wants to say that that basically the life very close to you is as valuable as the life very far away. But there might be very uh, powerful uh, explanations for why we take more seriously the life that is right next to us. There would be very good evolutionary explanations for why uh, we care more deeply about the people in front of us than we do about uh, the people we can't see on the other side of the valley. So that would be a psychological explanation for why we might care more about the, the, the person who's drowning in front of us than we do about the person on the other side of the world. But it's not the moral explanation. It's not good enough to say, well, in that case, we, we're OK to care more about the, the person who's dying just in front of us. We're just giving a psychological explanation, and Peter Singer wants to overcome that and say, yes, but what's the morality? What's the philosophy behind this? Can we justify uh, Can we justify this difference in feeling that we have? Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, research in trolleyology about why we have these different reactions, but that doesn't necessarily uh, answer, well, it certainly doesn't answer the philosophical question about what our reaction should be, what we should do. So the the psychology explains why we believe what we believe, but it doesn't reach the the deeper question, which is the normative question, what should we do? There's a a great deal of neuroscience that uh, uh, has been done now on these trolley problems. Josh Green is a key figure uh, from Harvard and uh, he uh, the claim that is made is that, uh, in the first case, the spur case, the bit of the brain that is being exercised when we decide to turn the train down the spur is the the, the cognitive the reflective part of the brain, whereas the bit of the brain that is Uh, doing all the work when we're reluctant to push the fat man is the emotional part of the brain now i think a really interesting question in philosophy and a really tough question in philosophy and i don't have the answer to this is what we do with those um empirical facts with that description of what is happening in the brain now peter singer i think wants to say well um if if the um emotional part of the brain is what's doing the work in the, the fat man case, that just shows that we're being squeamish. We're just being squeamish about pushing the fat man. We ought to overcome our squeamishness and, and uh, we ought to um, uh, behave in the way that the cognitive part of our brain is, is, is telling us to behave. Whereas another way of thinking about it is that um, the emotional part of the brain, the emotions are what kind of makes us human. And people who don't have that aspect to, to their makeup are not... Fully human, or that they're not kind of uh, uh, a paradigm, uh, a kind of human being. Uh, And um, uh, we should listen to our emotions. It's interesting that uh, psychopaths are more likely to push the fat man than non psychopaths. So (laughs) there are two conclusions we could draw. We could say, well, psychopaths are getting it right. Or we could say, well, psychopaths in various other moral cases seem to get case is wrong. So perhaps that provides very weak evidence that they're wrong about the fat man. If they're more willing to push the fat man, perhaps perhaps the fact that psychopaths are more willing to push the fat man provides very weak evidence that pushing the fat man is the wrong thing to do.
0: Right. Um, So we've got some reason then, I take in Josh Green is one of the the, the, the persons who uh, you, you discuss in the book is sort of talking about these kinds of results. Um, don't we have reason to think though that um, the, the, the singer style um, uh, way of um, um, analyzing the relationship between uh, our reasoning and our emotive uh, reactions in these decision-making contexts has um, – put things uh, the wrong way around. Uh, that is um, that the, the the reasons are actually um, sort of things that show up after the fact uh, as ways of um, uh, justifying emotional responses that we, um, we, we don't know why we have them or we, we can't say anything for them. So we try to overlay some other kind of explanation, uh, which is actually um, uh, fabricated.
1: Yes. I mean uh, – th- I'm not an expert on this, but I have a small section about this in the book. And I think the overwhelming evidence is precisely that now that it looks like emotion is doing much of the work and reason comes along afterwards and provides an ad hoc post hoc rationalization for what our instinctive intuition is. So, uh, we feel like we should behave in a certain way, and then it's reason that comes along and provides the the uh, rationale for why our emotion um, is the right emotion. And John Haidt is one of the key figures in this, and, and, and uh, uh, he writes a lot about uh, the fact that uh, emotion is in the driving seat, and he, he has uh, interesting cases which he calls mole dumbfounding, where For example, he imagines in a contentious case, he imagines a a brother and a sister who decide to um, have sex one night. It has no bad effects. They want to experiment. Uh, They never do it again. And uh, they use two forms of contraception. So there's no byproduct of of their action. And uh, he asks people whether it's right or wrong. And almost everybody says, uh, disgusting, that's morally repugnant. And he says, why? And they say, well, because there might be a baby and the baby might be deformed or something. He says, no, no, no danger about a, there being a baby because there are two forms of contraception. And, and uh, they say, uh, well, they're going to be psychologically damaged. And he says, no, no, they're not going to be psychologically damaged. They're going to be absolutely fine. That's, uh, that's a stipulation of the, of the scenario. And eventually people just run out of explanations and they just say, well, it's just wrong. Uh, and he calls it moral dumbfounding and it looks like it's a, a, a example of emotion coming first and then reason, trying to, to justify it. And he has many other examples like that.
0: Right. Um, and so the, if something like this seems right, um, uh, does this just mean then that the philosophers have been barking up the wrong tree and that, Trolleyology is kind of uh, re- controlliology rests on a mistake.
1: Well, I kind of hope not, because then moral philosophy—a <laughs> a, a large swathe of moral philosophy—is is a waste of time. Uh, so, uh, one has to think that re- reason has a role to play, and some of Peter Singer's examples are very convincing. So, his examples of of the person in the in the pond in front of you and the person the other side of the world. It, it, is that, that case is very convincing that, that uh, our instinctive reaction might be to help the person in the pond but we think about it and we think we reflect and we use reason, we think no that life, the other side, even though we can't identify it, we don't, can't put a name to it maybe, but uh, if, if £150 would save that life it's equally important to save that life as it is to save the, the life in front of us. So that looks like an argument that's been, and a conclusion that's been reached through reason. One of the scary aspects of our moral intuitions and trolleyology draws that out is how fragile our intuitions are. So what they've done with these trolley cases is that they've changed, for example, the order in which they present these trolley scenarios. And we've talked about just two or three of them, but there are zillions of these trolley scenarios and they're able to change our reactions by changing the order in which they present them. Now that's really worrying and kind of scary. And there's now a whole swathe of psychology as well about how our behavior and our judgments are affected by completely irrelevant factors, like whether we're in a room where there's a lovely smell of bread or whether the desk is dirty in front of us. These Entirely irrelevant factors can have a big effect on how we uh, judge and how we behave. Now, that's really scary. So um, we somehow in moral philosophy need to uh, divorce ourselves or extrapolate ourselves from all those irrelevant factors and try and use reason and logic to reach conclusions and hope that we're not being affected by irrelevant considerations.
0: Right. And it certainly seems to us that we're not. I mean, this is the – I guess part of the scariness is not only are our intuitions um, in these cases, it seems, easily um, moved about and manipulated by what look like – um, irrelevant factors, like, uh, you know, the sticky substance on the desk that we're sitting at. But um, I take it that in some of these cases, um, where um, what look like irrelevant factors have been deployed to uh, affect our moral thinking or our moral decision making, um, it doesn't seem to us that that's what's that's what we're being affected by you know it seems to us that the stickiness of the table was merely an annoyance not something that is the causal uh uh antecedent to our deciding uh the moral case differently i mean i guess that's the that's the frightening part that not only is it the fragility but also the that that we that that we convince ourselves or that doesn't seem to us that these things really matter or it's hard for us to even see that they matter yeah
1: we might be completely unaware of them there 's an example which experimental ethicists talk about, which a study done quite some time ago of of people who are asked by a down and out by a, 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 a tramp to give money uh, and whether or not they do uh, they just these are people who come out of a telephone kiosk this was done. Uh, You can tell quite a long time ago before. uh, Obviously, these days, nobody goes into telephone kiosks because everybody (laughs) has cell phones. But um, whether they gave money was affected to an enormous degree by whether they found by chance a dime. Uh, in the little kind of box at the bottom of the telephone that somebody had, you know, supposedly kind of left. So a tiny sum of money that was going to make no difference to anybody's life nonetheless seemed to have a big impact on whether they were generous uh, to uh, the, the person in need just outside the telephone kiosk. Now, if you'd ask people, well, why were you so generous or why were you so mean, they wouldn't have been able to detect any causal link between that and the fact that they just discovered a dime in, 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 in the telephone kiosk. They would have been completely unaware of that causal chain. But we know through the research that it did have a big impact.
0: Well, that's amazing. Um, so uh, you've been very generous with your time uh, talking about generosity. Um, so let me ask just as a final question, um, you know, uh, in the very last paragraph of the book, um, uh And throughout the book, there are moments where you um uh are, are clearly inserting you know your in your own voice you know making a a pronouncement and breaking off from the story that you're telling to actually uh 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 make an assertion of your own view but this comes through most uh, in a way strikingly at the very end of the book where you just say. Uh, you would not push the fat man, no matter like, a, even going through all of the, the the history of the problem, the different permutations of the trolley scenarios, and uh, the kind of psychological data uh, that we um, uh, were just talking about. Um, you wouldn't push the tro- uh, wouldn't push the fat man. Um, over the bridge to stop the trolley. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about whether, is that just a doctrine of double effect kind of uh, conviction on your part? Or, uh, you know, if somebody were to say, why not? Uh, what exactly would you say?
1: I wouldn't push to that, and I think the doctrine of double effect explains why. The doctrine of double effect, we don't have time to go into this, has been right. dismissed as an explanation. Uh, because there's... I trolley case, which I, again, I don't have time to go into, where it looks like the do- doctrine of double effect can't do the work. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I think that the doctrine of double effect actually does explain our intuitions in the trolley cases. And I think it has powerful intuitive appeal. I think this distinction between intending and merely foreseeing has powerful intuitive appeal. I think it is simple and straightforward when you're looking for a, a principle um, to um, explain one's intuitions and to justify one's in, intuitions, which are not quite the same thing. But if you're looking for principle, simplicity, I think, is uh, uh, a, a great virtue. And I think it, 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 it explains our uh, intuitions very s- simply. I think it has broad success. So I think it explains our intuitions in almost all the trolley cases and, um, the, the theory itself, I think, um, is, is easy to explain and to understand and makes, and makes perfect sense. So I think on several grounds, the doctrine of double effect is the right way to go. And that's why I wouldn't push the Batman.
0: <laughs> well, Dave, that's, uh, that's a great answer. Uh, and um, I wanted to thank you very much uh, for joining me today on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your new book. Would You Kill the Fat Man? Um, Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Bob. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes, take care now. You've been listening to my interview with David Edmonds. We were talking about his new book, Would You Kill the Fat Man? Recently published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.